that opening song, uh, we've heard the, the gospel mentioned repeatedly, uh, on Christ the solid rock I stand, you know, the gospel, the cross of Christ, however we want to phrase that, uh, at the, the end of the day, it's the only thing that matters to any of us. Uh, the, the cross of Christ humbles us on one hand, shows us what sinners we are and what desperate need we have on one hand, and then it lifts us up on the other. It is the only safe place in the universe to be. You know, um, I'm reading through Psalms and part of my quiet times. Remember the Psalm that says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I was in California, Kathy and I were, uh, last week and a half or so, and we were being introduced to our latest grandchild, Judah Wang, and, and you know, he's probably the cutest child you've ever seen, <laughs> almost certainly. Uh, seeing the Wangs and the Tinkers and, and having a great time with them, and do you find it obnoxious, the people that drive in front of you with the, the license plates that say, or sticker, ask me about my grandchild? I'm thinking, get a life. You know what? You know, or the people that you meet in the doctor's office or something, they say, would you like to see my grandchild? And you know, wonder of wonders, I found that I'm, I'm just like them now. <laughs> so if you want to see some really cute children, <laughs> pictures, videos, I've got them right here. It's no bother. So, so I've spent time with my grandkids, right? And so I'm delighted in them, and I love them, and I'm ready to talk to you about them. And you know, God willing, that's our experience as Christians with Christ too, right? If we've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good, shouldn't that characterize our interaction with each other? You know, the cross cuts us down, then it lifts us up. We taste and see that the Lord is good. Hopefully that's the experience each one of us here has had. That has nothing to do with the teaching, by the way. That was free. That was free. Hey, two, if you would, uh, this is the last call for a systematic theology class that starts September 10th, goes through May 12th, right here Thursday night, 7 to 8.30. We're going to go through Charles Ryrie's basic theology. When you talk about systematic theology, for many of us, our eyes glaze over. But really, if you think about it, systematic theology is a way of taking the big things the Bible talks about and just putting them together. So you may read some element of the Scripture and you may know a doctrine or a teaching, but you may not know how that relates to something else. So systematic theology, we're just putting the teachings of the Bible together so that we have a big picture understanding of what God wants us to know about. So today's the last day. You've got to buy a book. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's 23 bucks. You've got to mark up that book weekly. We'll take some, a few weeks off for the holidays. You've got to look up some words. You've got to read about 20 pages a week, and you've got to come here ready to learn, okay? So if you're interested, talk to me today, please. I hope you have a study sheet, a bulletin with a study sheet in it, on to the message. So if I ask you, what do Lance Armstrong, Moses, King Saul, and Abiathar, his name might not ring a bell for you, but he was high priest under King David, what do those guys have in common? Lance Armstrong, Moses, King Saul, High Priest of Iathar. It might be a stretch, but when I say Lance Armstrong to you guys, do you think the greatest bicycle racer of all time, or do you think cheat, fraud, disqualified cheater? Which is it? Or is it both? Yeah. Yeah. So Lance Armstrong, right, he disqualified himself from the racing world because of his unethical cheating he's admitted to some of it but not all of the accusations that have been raised 
but he disqualified himself. He is as famous or perhaps more famous for his disqualification as he was for his success and victory. Now, it may seem, sound odd, but Moses, Saul, and Abiathar share a similarity with Lance Armstrong. And it's this, that they all disqualified themselves from further service in God's program. Does that sound strange? But they did. So Lance Armstrong disqualified himself. Moses, he's up on the mountain with God, right? He receives the law. He is the guy, right? But when Moses reaches the end of his life, this is Deuteronomy 32, God has brought Israel to the edge of the land of promise. They're ready to go in. And so God has a short talk with Moses. He says, Moses, go up to this mountaintop and I want you to look over the Jordan and I want you to look from north to south. I want you to see all the land of promise that I'm leading Israel in. You're going to go up on that mountain and you're going to die. You're done. You're toast. You're history. You're not going in. This was a judgment. Moses had disqualified himself from going in. And God says, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people at Israel earlier in the wilderness march. So Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 34 says, his eyesight is keen, his body is strong and virile. He does not die here because he's 120 years old. He dies, his career is ended prematurely because he disqualified himself from further ministry. If you think of King Saul, King Saul was Israel's first king. You know, he's this huge, tall, strong, handsome, virile guy. But his heart does not belong to God. And so early on in his reign, God gives him a command. And he says, King Saul, you're to gather the army and you're to go to the Amalekites that are living in your land and you're to do to them what Israel did to Jericho when they came in the land. You're to wipe out every living thing. They're under the ban. I'm exercising my right. This is God to judge. We're not getting into the ethics of this. To judge. This is your command. But Saul didn't do it. He and the people spared both the king and the best of the land. And so God spoke to the prophet Samuel, who then communicated this to King Saul. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. He disqualified himself from further ministry. And you'll see after this, the Lord withdraws his Holy Spirit. His special presence with Saul for Saul to reign as king, he withdrew that spirit. You see David referring to that in Psalm 51. He disqualified himself from further work in God's kingdom. High priest Abiathar, this was a good guy under King David. This was King David's high priest. But when King David is near the end of his life, and he's going to pass the throne to the next generation, his descendant, one son, Adonai, just says, I'm going to take the throne. Adonijah was not David's choice. But Abiathar sides with Adonijah against Solomon and King David. So when Solomon takes the reign, he says this, Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, and this fulfilled a prophecy God had spoken to the house of Eli over 80 years earlier. He disqualified himself from further service. He would have continued to reign as high priest under Solomon's reign, but he didn't. He disqualified himself from service. These biblical characters all share not only great success and high responsibility, but they share the same type of failure you see with Lance Armstrong. They disqualified themselves from further service in God's kingdom in His name. You and I... Uh, 
we have no uh, doubt here uh, in Line Lamb Church that we are sinners. On our best day, we're sinners. Now, biblically, we're saints. We're saved. We have Christ's own righteousness. We're going to heaven. We're, we're good with that. But we're not under the illusion, and we don't want to practice a kind of hypocrisy that says we're up here and others are down here. No, we sin. We sin. We get that. But friends, this is the thing. All of us sin and we recognize that, but some sin in your life and mine will have a different impact than others. And what we're talking about this morning is being careful about sins in your life and mine that would have a disqualifying effect from our ability to do the things God has otherwise called us to do for His name in His cause. That's the theme of this morning. We don't want to disqualify ourselves from the things God's called us to do. Remember in Ephesians 2.10, it's part of this study series, God says there through Paul that God has ordained good works for you and I as believers to walk in. God's given us a plate, and on that plate there are things He wants specifically and uniquely you or I or others in our midst to do. So we don't want to disqualify ourselves from being about the work of our Father, honoring our Savior, glorifying Christ in that by disqualification. Think of this, if I'm found to be guilty of embezzling, is it likely that a bank will employ me anytime soon? Right? Yeah, or if I'm a politician and it's publicized that my vote is for sale unless all my constituents are given me the money to buy my votes, it's unlikely that I'll be elected to another term of office. Or if I'm a pedophile, do you think I'll be heading up a children's ministry anytime soon? Right? It's unlikely because I will have disqualified myself from one thing or another based on my misdeeds. So this morning we're talking about avoiding disqualification. All sin is bad. All sin brings death. Some sins will have the effect of keeping us from our Father's business. Those things God specifically wants us to be about. I forgot to start my timer. I guess all this time... This is free. So now I'll start. I have 40 more minutes. How nice. I'll do this again. I better watch the clock. Sorry. Hey, we're in week 7 of the study through Nehemiah. It's called Don't Quit. And the emphasis of this, it's not a verse-by-verse study. It's looking at the opposition that Nehemiah faced because God had commissioned him with the great work, go to Jerusalem from Persia, rebuild the walls, rebuild the city. God wanted His name to sparkle again from the city of Jerusalem. So that's Nehemiah's call. But he faced these points of opposition. And so we're looking at those points of opposition he faced And we're trying to find application for ourselves in that Nehemiah achieved the work God gave him to do. But he didn't do so without opposition. How did he face those points of opposition? What lessons can you and I take from that and apply to our own lives? So Nehemiah's in the 5th century B.C. He's back in Jerusalem. had been destroyed. If you remember, Persia's reigning the world. If you haven't been here for these earlier lessons. And we're in Nehemiah 6, verses 10-14. through We'll jump right in there. I'm reading from the ESV translation. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a pew Bible. It's of the same translation. I'd encourage you to pick one up and join in. So this is Nehemiah 6, verses 10 through 14. Now, this is Nehemiah speaking. When I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, Nehemiah. They're coming to kill you by night. 
But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Now we're just going to go with the strength of the narrative here. The truth is, on these specific individuals mentioned here, besides Tobiah and Sanballat, we don't know anything else about these folks. We don't know why Shemaiah is laid up and Nehemiah visits him at his home. Don't know anything about all that. We've just got the points of the narrative here. So look at Nehemiah's first response. There are a few people in the Bible who look better the deeper you look at their life. Nehemiah is one of them. God gives us these gems of character and personality. Daniel and Nehemiah would be two at the top of my list. The closer you inspect them, the better they look. So when Nehemiah has this initial response here, he displays this appropriate humility and this proven character so that when the trap is laid in front of him, and he doesn't know initially it's a trap, it's a snare, He responds out of who and what he is in this true humility and it saves him. His initial response is spot on. So, look at verse 11. First he says this, should such a man as I run away? When he says this, should such a man as I run away, he's saying, I'm the governor of Jerusalem. I am the big whopper of this city. I'm the most important person here. And everyone takes their cues from me. And so in humility, recognizing the position God's given me as governor, at the top of the food chain here of authority in Jerusalem, I recognize that the example I set has repercussions for others. As the one God's entrusted with this responsibility, I cannot afford to display fear. Because other people will see that and there will be fallout. So this time he says, should such a man as I run away. I've been given this key responsibility, this position of responsibility that others look up to. In all humility, I can't afford to have a negative impact on the people around me, should such a man as I run away. But then flip it over and he says, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Now, so here I'm this important governor, but here he says, What man such as I? Now he says, but I'm not a priest. He might be thinking of King Uzziah. Do you remember the story in 2 Chronicles? I think it's chapter 26. Do you remember King Uzziah? His early days are are outstanding. But he rises up in pride. And he thinks to go into the temple as a priest. He was not a priest. And offer incense. And do you remember what God does to him? He strikes him with leprosy. And Uzziah lives out the rest of his life as a leper. Nehemiah says, I know who I am and I know who I'm not. I know what my responsibility is and I know where my responsibility and authority ends. I'm not a priest. God has not allowed me to go into the temple. His humility here and His character 
on this initial response, this is absolutely spot on. I know who I am. Humbly, I want to respond appropriately in a way that recognizes my authority. But I also recognize a man such as me is not a priest. I have no license. I have no authority to go into the temple. Though I am the governor, though I am the chief politician here, I have no right to do this. I'm not going to do it. And that's what he closes on. I won't go in. You know, in the the game shows, they say, is that your final response? That's my final response. I'm not going in. That's what Nehemiah says. That's his initial response. Spot on because of his character and his humility. Look, though, at what follows up at the insights he has here. Verse 12 tells us, I understood and saw that God had not sent him, Shemaiah, with this message. We don't know what this looks like. So there might simply been a point where the Spirit of God gave Nehemiah insight. Maybe it's during the conversation. He hears it and suddenly he knows. He sees the spider web. This is not for real. This guy's speaking as a false prophet. We don't know. Maybe in the moment, don't know. You know, sometimes we have the Spirit of God, right, as Christians? Sometimes do you find yourself where you're in a situation and we assume that we're walking with the Lord, we're trying to please the Lord, and you'll just have this lack of peace in a moment where you just say something's wrong. Something's not right. I don't have peace to go forward. Or I don't know what's amiss, but something's not right here. That may have been what happened to Nehemiah. When you get that, it's usually prudent to act on that. I'm not going forward or I'm staying put or whatever that is. That may have been the way it happened to Nehemiah. We don't know because the text doesn't say. But in the moment or subsequent to that, he finds out this was a snare and a scheme and a trap put together by his enemies and God's enemies. So, verse 12, he says, he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Now we know who these two guys are. They're rulers in the area around Jerusalem. And we've already determined that they do not want this city rebuilt. So this is simply their latest assault on Nehemiah because they want the work to fail. If you remember, Sanballat had sent messengers earlier to Nehemiah. Verse 13, this is where this ends. So he says, For this purpose he was hired that I would be afraid, I would act in this way in sin, they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Sanballat and Tobiah are after stopping the work. Nehemiah is important only because he's key to their strategy of stopping the work. But that's what they're after. They don't care how they get it done. They simply want the work of God to stop. And so this is a conspiracy. It's a scheme. It's a strategy they're pursuing so that God's work on the wall will stop. Now if you remember earlier, They had come into the city of Jerusalem and they had accused Nehemiah that he was going to set himself up as king. And that's why he was strengthening the walls. Now, can you imagine where this would go? Now, to the accusation on the king, there's no evidence whatsoever. But they said, we're going to tell on you. We're going to tell King Artaxerxes this is what you're up to. No evidence. If Nehemiah, though, goes into the temple, what do you think they would do? They've tempted him to go into the temple. They've tricked him to go into the temple. And if he goes into the temple, don't you think they'd say the same? Nehemiah is setting himself up as a priest now. So he, he wants to be king. Now he wants to be priest too. They'll accuse him. Or they'll say, look, he's afraid. You remember in the Gospels, the Pharisees and Sadducees try to confront Jesus with these no-win situations. Doesn't matter what he does, we've got him. 
That's sort of what's going on here. No matter what he does, we've got him. If he acts in fear, we've got him. If he goes in, we'll say he's usurping the priesthood and the crown. So this is all a strategy so that they could accuse Nehemiah so Nehemiah would disqualify himself from his leadership and his role and his ability to lead Jerusalem in rebuilding those walls. So Nehemiah, whether it's in the moment or subsequently afterward, came to understand that this was another conspiracy. It was a scheme. It was a strategy by the enemy to stop God's work. It's always the work. You know, we will come and go. All of us here, right? In this room. Like every generation before us. But God's work continues. God's work is the thing. But you and I have importance because God works through His people. So if you're a son or daughter of God, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you stand at the cross with the rest of us and say, I'm a sinner in need of God's saving grace in Christ, then you become a target like Nehemiah because God is determined to work through you. If you're a Christian, you have spiritual gifts, you have a call from God on your life to do works that no one else has been called to do. Uniquely, you have things to do. And so the enemy wants to marginalize us just as he wanted to marginalize Nehemiah as well. Friends, we have to bring in our minds the kind of wisdom you read about in Proverbs and in other parts of the Bible. There are strategies and schemes that are set against us. Some of the temptations you and I face, they're just from our lust, they're from our bitter hearts, they're from our old sinful nature that we've got as long as we're in this body. But guys, some of the other temptations, they're part of a larger strategy. You remember in Proverbs that the lady comes out of her house, I think it's Proverbs 5. She's got a goal for a young man. She's going to lure him into her bed. She has a strategy and a scheme. Well, some of the temptations you and I face, there's more going on than our little temptation to sin. The enemy is after marginalizing us, having us marginalize ourselves, disqualify ourselves from the things God wants us to do. So it's all sin is bad. All sin brings death. Some sins can disqualify us in ways that other sins will not. A few weeks ago, we talked about uh, having a purpose firm and that Nehemiah said, I won't come down from the wall because I've got a great work. For some of us, we said, we just need to get in the game and be aware, Lord, what is it that You've called me to? What are the particulars You want me to be about? And that's a starting point, but we don't finish there. To that, we have to bring a strategy of our own. We have to bring a wisdom and a mindset that says, not only has God entrusted me with certain works of faith He means me to be about, but I have to be wise and shrewd and have a strategy so that I can succeed because the devil's against me. Because the enemy has strategies working against me as well. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. This was to the church in Corinth. And the context is there was a forgiveness and relationship issue going on within the church that wasn't resolved. Paul says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, we are not ignorant of his designs. ESV says, NASB says that word schemes. The thought, it's thoughts, it's organized thoughts. In this case, it's evil thoughts that the enemy is trying to use to harm the church in Corinth. That's what he does to churches. It's what he does to individuals as well. So we simply want to be aware. Guys, if we're in the arena, if we're Christians, if we're attempting to make a difference in the world for Christ, you are going to find yourself targeted by the enemy because the work is the thing. 
And to the, to the degree that God has given us works of faith to do, the enemy is going to oppose us. And of course, the more people we affect, the more focused energy we may expect. <clears throat> we'll close on the theme of prayer <clears throat> related to that. But as believers seeking to make a difference for the kingdom of Christ, we become targets for the enemy's schemes and strategies. Well, let me ask you this. We're not building a wall. Nehemiah was a governor. Most of us here aren't governors. The work's a little different, right? The life, the time, the place, all that's a little different. So what would disqualification for you and I look like? So here's some examples I've come up with. You'd come up with others. Just thinking of, if I'm serving in Lion Lamb Church, this would be true for this church specifically. Some of this would be true for other churches generally. But if I serve minors in this church and chose not to abide by ministry-safe guidelines, we've just finished recertifying for this, I would be disqualified from serving children in this church. I would disqualify myself. Couldn't do it. Serving children's a big deal. The, the ability to impact an eternal life for Christ is huge. You know, you read Jesus' words in the Gospels about the importance of children and the kind of attitude and mentality we should have about the care we should have for children. This is a big deal. I could disqualify myself from being able to speak into the lives of children if I chose not to abide by the ministry-safe rules of this church. If I'm serving in this church in a teaching or leading role, Sunday schools, home groups, and I choose not to abide by the requirements of those roles, and there are requirements, I would be disqualified from having that role of influence as a teacher or leader in this church. I wouldn't be able to continue doing that. If I serve the church as an elder or a deacon, but I don't maintain the standards Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 3, I would disqualify myself from being able to have that influence in the lives of others. You see how this pans out. All temptation is not the same. All sin is not the same. We can disqualify ourselves. Some of this is formal. If you think somebody's, uh, they have a particular role in the church, there's a formal element to that. But friends, a lot of this is very informal. So it doesn't have to be, I'm a governor and, and I'm impeached or something. This can be informal. So spiritual gifts. If you're a Christian, you have spiritual gifts. I, I hope if you don't know, you'll find out what those are. You have unique abilities by God to serve others. Specifically in the church, to build up the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 especially talk about these things. But, if I unnecessarily alienate others, maybe simply by rude or dismissive behavior, from my persona, they may not care what my spiritual gift is. And I may have unofficially, informally, disqualified myself from serving others in Christ's name with the gifts and the call and the works He gave me to because of the way I treat others. If I'm so known for my opinions that others turn me off, when I might be able to bless them, I have informally disqualified myself from being able to serve them in Christ's name. Do I come across as so trite or immature or one bunny trail after another that others simply don't trust me? They don't consider my opinion or my gifts valuable. This happens. I see this happen. I had a friend years ago who lamented to me. He says, Mike, I say the same thing to people that other people say, and when other people say it, they accept it. When I say it, they don't. I say, well, clearly you're the problem, right? It's not the message. It's you. They've already tuned you out. They've turned you off. That's you. That's not the message. They're open to the message. They're not open to you giving the message. That's your problem. He had disqualified himself from being able to influence others. 
parents as disciples of children. Again, as parents, remember the call, we have children. The role is a discipler. You know, when we talk to parents about uh, children, it's the role of discipleship. We're discipling them in the faith to know and love and serve and glorify Christ. That's the call. It's not to raise kids. It's to disciple children into the kingdom of God and to grow up. But think of this. If I am a dad especially, if I as a dad am especially harsh or abusive in my behavior or my words, my children may just close their hearts to me. They don't have to tell me anything. They just do it. And that's what I did to my dad when I was a little guy. It had terrible ramifications for decades afterwards. I just shut him down. I said, you're not going to speak into my life. We can do that especially as dads. Dads are warned against this in Ephesians 6. If I as a parent have a consuming hobby or interest that takes me outside the realm and the sphere of my children, they may simply conclude, my mom or dad have time for everyone or everything else but not for me. And write me off. They don't have to tell me. They're just not listening anymore. Or how about this? If I'm one person in my home and what I say and how I behave, and another person in the public arena, and my children see that because there's no hiding who we are at home, right? They might just say, Mom or Dad, they're a hypocrite. I have no desire. I've shut them off. We've disqualified ourselves. It's not formal, and others may not even be aware. But we've disqualified ourselves from the ability to speak as disciples into our children's lives. Evangelism is the same thing. Again, I hope, guys, that you know, if we know Christ as He is, He's life, right? He's the center of all delights. He's the center of all joy, all peace. Anything worth having is in Christ, is in God. And the more you know Him, the more delighted you become. And you overflow. And we should overflow with the message of Christ, the Gospel, to those around us. But if my reputation with my fellow employees or students or neighbors is not very good, but I come over to share Jesus with them, I wonder how open they are to hearing about Jesus from me if I'm not already a good neighbor or a good employee, or a good boss. You see how this goes. Informally, I can disqualify myself from being able to have that kind of impact in sharing the hope of Christ with others informally because of what I've already communicated to them, who I am and what I'm like. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 9, and Paul knows he's the key apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's the guy with the Gospel message, right? Most of the New Testament written by Paul. He said he understood, like Nehemiah, God had laid on him a responsibility, a commission that he wasn't free to say no to. And he said he had to bring this thoughtfulness and this care to his role as apostle. And he speaks about it as an athlete. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.25-27, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Remember back in the Greek and Roman days, they, they had a laurel wreath. But we an imperishable. Think of Lance Armstrong. Not the doping, but the focus and the discipline. That was for a victory that would soon be forgotten and a crown that would wither away on the shelf. Paul said related to himself in his own ministry, I don't run aimlessly. I'm not training like there's not a goal. I don't box as one beating the air. I'm focused. I'm disciplined. I discipline my body. I keep it under control. This is his point. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Paul says, I can't afford to disqualify myself from the race of life God's called me to as his apostle, as his key spokesman to the Gentiles. So look at your own life. Think about this as we're winding down. If I look at my life, what are those strategic areas of my life in which if I sinned or compromised, I would lose considerably my ability to influence others or to speak into other people's lives, what might those look like for you or for me specifically? It won't be the same for all of us. Are we being faithful, you and I today, in the little things of life, serving faithfully in the obscure places God may have us laboring? Are we, are we building the character that you see in Nehemiah? And it was Nehemiah's proven character that allowed him to respond appropriately in that moment. Guys, we're not prepared for the great works of God if we're not serving faithfully and wisely right now. And in the area of character, there are no small works. Remember that Nehemiah had labored probably for decades in the courts of Artaxerxes. He was not a governor of Jerusalem. But he had proven his worth such that the king could say, yeah, I'll appoint you as governor. You're my cupbearer. He goes from cupbearer, which was not an insignificant role, but it's not the same as governor. You're the guy that's been tasting my wine. I'm going to make you the governor of a city. He had proven his character over and over again. We need a sense of purpose and call, but to that, we need to add both faithfulness and a strategic way of seeing life so that we don't unintentionally or intentionally disqualify ourselves from the works of faith God wants us to be about. I want to speak to something very briefly just to recognize that we don't have time to develop this at all. I might sit here this morning and say, I've already disqualified myself. I already know people have written me off. I know my kids have tuned me out. Or I have fallen from some ability I used to have because of my misdeeds in the past. Is there hope for restoration? And to the question, is there hope? I say, well, that's a qualified yes. That's a qualified yes. We've got it in Scripture. This is on your study sheet. Peter and John Mark both failed miserably. They disqualified themselves, but both of them were restored and went on to outstanding service. That's why we are well aware of them today. There was restoration. But there are other people like Damas. Most of us, if you say Damas, uh, does anybody here know who he is? Even, But he's mentioned three times in the New Testament. And the last time he's mentioned, he's Paul's companion. He's traveling with Paul on Paul's missionary journeys. The last word we have on Damas is, Damas has forsaken us. He's loved this present world. He's taken off. That's the last word we have. So, if I've disqualified myself in the past, is there hope of restoration? Well, yes, it's a qualified hope, though. And there's so many mitigating circumstances, it's hard to say what that might look like. We don't want to go there. If you're there, the thing to do is, is repent. Make restoration if that's needed and where it's possible. And then get back to being faithful with the things God's allowed you to be a part of still. I want to close with this last point, point five, verse 14, and it's on prayer. Nehemiah, after this incident, simply prays and he says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets, false prophets we might say, who wanted to make me afraid. The end of this matter for Nehemiah, it's this short prayer. Now you remember from way back when we started, Nehemiah is a man of prayer. He prays first, he prays last. He prays. But this is how he ends this sequence. This strategy set against him, there's a short prayer and he's done. 
Lord, You take care of them. Lord, I give those false prophets over to You. He's not even following up. Lord, I give them, I give the situation to You. I'm getting back to the work at hand. Paul says something similar to this in 2 Timothy 4.14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord will take care of it. This is the thing for us. Nehemiah didn't waste his time, his energy, his focus on retribution against the enemy. There are times when it's strategic where we have to engage someone who's engaging us, who's seeking to minimize us, right? And the church does too. There's arguments to be made. There's defenses to be made sometimes. This wasn't one of them. So Nehemiah simply says, Lord, I leave them to You. And he got back to the work at hand. And friends, I am amazed that we as Christians, if the enemy doesn't get us at the front door, he often gets us at the back. So if I successfully negotiate a snare or a temptation by the enemy to avoid trouble on the front end, I may end up wasting my time, my energy, my focus on the bad guys that opposed me. And so I start thinking about those lousy politicians and that other person that calls himself a Christian and that neighbor or whoever. And in my mind, I'm wasting my time and energy seeking retribution against the person that wasn't able to bring me down. But now they've succeeded, or the enemy has succeeded, because now instead of investing in the work I've been called to, I'm wasting my time thinking about how I can get the people who tried to get me. And I think Christians do this all the time. There are strategic battles to wage. But more often than not, we want to do what Nehemiah did. Lord, I don't have time for them. I have Your work to do, Your work to be about. I commit them to You, and I'm getting back to the labors at hand. He ended in prayer. I would ask you guys sincerely, seriously, uh, to just ask you to pray for the leaders, the elders and deacons of Lion Lamb Church. I mean this in all seriousness. Having come from a couple different churches, Grace Fellowship in Kentucky, where two of our daughters go, Cornerstone Church in uh, Riverside, California, where two other daughters go, there are great churches around that really are Gospel-centered. They're exalting Christ. They're sharing the Gospel. They're discipling. Guys, the leaders need your prayer. And I sincerely ask for it. We don't want to stumble and fall. We don't want to disqualify ourselves. We don't want to bring shame to Christ's name. So we sure appreciate your prayer. So, if you'll pray for us, we'll pray for you. How's that? You pray for us and we'll pray for you. Lord, would you give us the wisdom as well as the dedication of wise, godly Nehemiah. Lord, he displayed the wisdom of Christ, the character of Christ. Would you help us to do the same thing, to be about your business? And Lord, to think strategically as Paul did, to be aware that there are schemes that are brought about for our downfall and disqualification. Would you help us to walk the narrow road of righteousness, Lord, to be available to you for all the good works you mean us to be about. Help us to glorify Jesus in the days you give us on this earth. In his name, amen.